You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Josh Pack, co-CEO and managing partner at Fortress Investment Group. How are you, Josh? I'm well, James. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're excited to dig into your credit market views. We're also delighted to welcome back Lisa Lee, who covers credit markets from London for Bloomberg News. Thanks for coming on the show. Delighted to be here, James. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, excellent to see Tolu Alamutu, also in London. Welcome back, Tolu. Thank you, James. Great to be here. So let's start with you, Josh. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. We're going to get into the specifics of your portfolio and where you see the big opportunities in global credit. But first, let's get your macro view. Inflation is back on the agenda. It hasn't yet gone away. And that will determine how far and how fast central banks can cut rates. Corporate debt rallied very strongly at the end of last year and as a significant amount of 2024 easing got priced in, starting as soon as March, which seems seemed very likely a done deal until very, very recently. That's all being hastily revised and markets are selling off, just as we're seeing corporate supply really ramping up. So where do we go from here, Josh? Guests on this show keep telling us this is a great credit market, tons of opportunity out there. What's your view? Well, I, you know, uh, I'm not the greatest uh, macroeconomist in the world, but we've we've been right, I think, so far as we've been um, thinking about rates and, you know, basically just listening to what the Fed has been saying. Um, the Fed's been very clear that, you know, they were going to raise rates and they were going to do it quickly to stamp out inflation. And I think as long as we saw um, the the labor markets continue to hold together, you know, we, we kind of believed that they were going to continue along that path. And at the beginning of this year, when, you know, we saw a lot of optimism priced into the forward curve uh, with all these, you know, rate reductions that people are expecting down the road, I, I just don't think they're going to materialize. Um, you know, I told one of my coworkers that I, and when we got back to work after the holidays that and we saw a four percent ten year, I said that's the that's the low tick for the year. We're gonna end up higher um at the end of the year, whether that's four and a half or five percent, I don't know. Um, but our view is is we're 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 gonna be in an elevated interest rate environment for a long period of time, and that the uh, you know one percent free money environment is a thing of the past, and we're not gonna see that again. So you're definitely into uh, in, in a minority there. I just wanted to get straight into um, one sector that everyone is talking about and quite worried about at the moment, real estate. Josh, that seems to be a big worry, especially on the commercial side. Loans are starting to trade. Valuations are dropping. Banks are taking a hit. What happens next? Well, um, I mean, real estate is a concern because it needs to be a concern. And there is a there is a, a interconnectivity between real estate and banks. Um, and, you know, frankly, you're seeing the, that kind of unwind. Um, you've 
been seeing that at, that unwind over the past you know 12 months with the mini bank crisis last spring and then of course we were reminded that banks aren't in great shape when we saw a new york community bank um you know start to fall apart as well and that was actually one of the rescue banks that you know the fdic um you know put together in a shotgun ready uh, shotgun wedding with signature bank um to take over all of their troubled assets so i think it's really interesting that you know they kind of mispriced the assets that they were acquiring uh the fdic may have mispriced the assets that they are acquiring and you know the folks like us that were also putting bids in on those portfolios that were you know pricing that stuff at 50 and 60 cents on the dollar i think you know are looking to be more correct in today's environment um but when we think about real estate it, it's kind of it's kind of falling into kind of three main buckets of opportunity and it is a it is a massive opportunity, I think, for folks that are um, investors in troubled assets. Um, you know, this is going to be a trillion-dollar opportunity that's going to exist over the next few years, and it's going to take a lot of time and money um, to work out. If you think about this asset class as just a massive restructuring. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to take a lot of new capital and it's going to take a lot of write downs of existing positions. Um, so when we look at it, on the one hand, we kind of have, you know, buying existing debt and we're typically buying that debt from banks and that could be whole loans. It could be performing loans. It could be, you know, portfolios of office, office loans that are, you know, currently paying today, but the banks um, you know, may not want to have to deal with them when they hit their maturity date because they think they're underwater. Um, so they'll shed those assets today at a discount to par. Um, we're also very active buyers of MPLs or non-performing loans, which are kind of all of the other types of non-commercial non real estate types of loans that banks might hold. Um, we're seeing opportunities as well in securities, um, though we haven't really seen it manifest itself yet in the um, CMBS securities. Um, we have seen some opportunity in, in what, what's called SASBs, which are single asset, single borrower securitizations. Um, and then of course, <clears throat> there's, there's great opportunities in the market today because you've had this massive retraction in lending from, from the primary sources of liquidity to real estate, which was small and regional sized banks, there's this vacuum now um, and we can provide new money, we can provide new loans, we can recapitalize um, you know, good assets that have bad balance sheets at the end of the day. Because not, not all, you know, not all uh, assets in the real estate world, at least today, are on fire, but, um, but a good chunk of them are. So Josh, CMBS is looking pretty wide as it is, but you don't think it's correctly priced yet. When do you think, when will you dive into that piece of the market? And what is your take on why things might be mispriced? Well, um, you know, the, um, the, the CMBS market, uh, well, first of all, there's been a pretty strong rally in credit just over the past month. Um, and I think, I think CMBS prices have been um, kind of bid up. Uh, and I, I think that you, in the CMBS market, it's really about the haves and the have-nots. You really have high-quality assets with good sponsors that are going to, like, you know, maintain their value, that are going to maintain their their um, payments, um, and then you have this kind of other, um, 
you know, grouping of, of properties that don't fall into that category, which are really at risk. I think the market has identified those kind of two um, classes of assets that exist within um, CMBS and are pricing it um, uh, based on, on, on that. Where I think you're going to have a change of the mindset is when you start seeing some of those quote unquote high quality assets or, or people or, or properties that folks thought they would never get back or that the special servicer would never, you know, have to extend or do some, you know, egregious modification on when they start seeing those higher quality properties get into trouble and they start seeing sponsors hand back the keys on them. That's when I think you'll see a real kind of shift in, in how people are underwriting and approaching the, uh, the CMBS market. There's also an impact we're hearing, Josh, on uh, collateralized loan obligations, CLOs, um, the floating rate bridge loans being repackaged into what they're calling CRE CLOs, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but with interest rates still very high, borrowers who took out these loans in 2021, 22 are struggling. And so are the lenders who package them into CRE CLOs. We've heard from a lot of people that um, your firm is among those providing rescue lines of credit to issuers of CRE CLOs especially with banks retreating and closing warehouse lines. Is that the case? How bad are things for CRE CLOs? I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a tough market for them. Um, as you know, I think, I think we've been looking at it kind of stepping in where banks have been stepping out of certain situations, not only in the real estate space, but we've seen kind of other, um, forward flow opportunities so these might be consumer finance companies or or mortgage originators where they may have kind of originated product and then directly securitized it into the market um, now since that that exit isn't available we're able to kind of step in between and become an aggregator of those assets and then you know we'll put on a little bit of lever leverage today generate a nice return and then when the markets do return you know to normal whether that's two or three years from now We'll, we'll exit those those properties. But but with respect to the CRE kind of CLO and CDO market, there's definitely issues with the bridge lending that's occurred there. And I think that it will provide opportunities for folks like us to come in and recapitalize those underlying assets and end up taking kind of more of the upside at the end of the day. You, you, you'll have the, the borrowers that will ultimately end up hanging on for a hope note or want to continue to operate the asset um, for some sort of economic incentive, but the bulk of the kind of upside that they may have had in a particular project will be transferred to the lenders or the new, the new, new capital partner that comes in. Josh, moving over to Europe, the real estate market is not looking great here either, and especially lately, Germany has been making a lot of headlines. What is your take on the situation in Europe, in particular Germany? We've just started, I think, kind of seeing some one-off opportunities in Germany. Um, what I can talk about is is kind of the activity that we've seen in the NPL space, the non-performing loan space, especially around um, kind of the, the the Mediterranean countries there. So Portugal, um, Spain, Italy, Greece, those markets. Um, we, we've we've been in those markets as a as a buyer of MPLs um, for two decades. Um, we have a great team over there, uh, headed by Francesco Colsanti, that that runs that business. And um, you know, to give you a sense, last year or I think two years ago, 
sorry, three years ago, we originated, um, call it 75 million euro of product um, in MPLs. Um, la the year before last, we did um, kind of 88 mil million euros. And then last year, um, we did north of 550 million euros um, for 2023. And for 2024, we're already looking at kind of sourcing north of 300 um, million. So the the amount of, of MPLs that banks are shedding um, and the volume in that market has just, you know, picked up 10x. And I think that's a, a sign of kind of the underlying stress that many of them are facing and need to get rid of these, you know, these bad assets as quickly as they can. Josh, uh, earlier you you mentioned the sort of trillion dollar opportunity in real estate, which I was ecstatic to hear, obviously, as a real estate analyst. But then you talked about the massive restructuring and clearly not so happy to hear that as um, in my position. But I just wanted to, to ask whether you could maybe shed light on um, what sectors you think uh, within real estate are most stressed. You've already talked a lot about offices. Are there other areas um, that you think maybe we could see more pain? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when we look at kind of real estate valuations overall, uh, I mean, since 2022, I think overall real estate values have come down like 20, 25%. Um, you know, when you look at um, kind of public markets, it's maybe come down 30%. Um, and then within there, you have, you know, you have some good assets and you have bad assets. You know, office is, is facing this, you know, this headwind of, of people, you know, officing less, you know, working remotely, working from alternative uh, spaces. Um, so that's definitely going to put pressure on rent. And we've seen, you know, office um, assets priced down, you know, as much as 50%. And, and some of the, you know, B and C class suburban might be worth land value at this point. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty bad in that sector. But, you know, it won't stop us from investing in it because there's a price for everything. And if I can, you know, buy a performing office loan um, that may have three or four years of duration um, for 50 or 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, collect a coupon, you know, for the next three or four years and sink my basis and even further, you know, I might be close to land value by the time I actually have to, you know, redo that loan. Um, now the banks don't want to do that. They don't necessarily have the um, the infrastructure or the asset management or just the experience of restructuring, you know, large amounts of of real estate portfolios. Um, but in Fortress, you know, this is kind of what we do and what we've been doing for the past, you know, 22 years, and we have that infrastructure and and know how in place. Um, and it's not rocket science, but it does take a lot of inf you know per investing in personnel, and it does take a lot. Um, of technology and and uh, and infrastructure and expense at the end of the day, um, I think um, when you look at when you look at um, real estate securities um, in the CMBS market, you have like a trillion dollars that's coming due by 2025. Um, we think half of those are troubled, and when when I say they're troubled, um, it means that kind of you know as of a year ago those loans may have been at like 80% loan to value um, just by the decrease in value that was already realized. And so now with the additional passage of time, you might be looking at loans that are 100 or even 110% of, of the value. Um, 
so you know those those issues can be dealt with. They're just not going to be dealt with at par. Um, it's going to require somebody else, you know, uh, like us, to come in and and buy those at a discount. You talked about this sort of being your sort of bread and butter business. You you've um, looked at the uh, working these things out over three or four years, and maybe the banks are not able to do that. And we, I guess, we'll come to the banks in a minute. But one of the other issues, I guess, we've been facing is the difference between so-called prime or Class A type assets and the not so prime assets. So. Um, in in your view, is there enough of an opportunity within the prime uh, subsect uh, for you to, um, is that the subsect that you're looking at? Or do you think that you need to look at um, some of the non-prime stuff to really get the returns that you would like? Well, in, in the security space, we're definitely looking more towards the prime. Um, so we're looking at, you know, attractive yields, I'd say kind of mid-teen yields, but in assets, you know, that are, you know, it could be the best office building in San Francisco. I mean, you know, it's got a great sponsor. It has a great uh, rent roll. They've got, you know, a lot of um, tenants that have signed up for good term. You can buy some of the junior tranches in that. It, it pretty attractive um, yields, um, especially if you're looking at a yield to maturity. And then even if you get a couple of extensions built in there from the servicer, it's still, it's still a relatively kind of attractive risk and reward. So we're looking at that on the security side. And, and again, that's primarily um, through SASBs that we're doing that. Um, and then on the whole loan side, it will get a li- little murkier. You know, we're, we're going to buy, um, you know, we, we have bought, you know, probably a billion and a half um, of um, performing office loans from financial institutions. Um, and these have, you know, ranged anywhere from kind of 50 cents on the dollar to 69 cents on the dollar. But as I mentioned before, these are all performing today. So you're clipping coupons on them today um, and sinking your basis even further. And then um, when we buy these, you know, you, you might have a portfolio of 25 or 30 loans. Um, you're coming up with an asset management and workout plan for each one. And some of them, you know, may have a good sponsor attached to it. So you know that they're going to protect the asset. Uh, some of them may just be a, a, a you know, a, a single shingle kind of owner um, or a family office, and, and you might not have that ability to tap in. And so you're pricing each one of those assets differently. You know, we might price one property at 25 cent recovery, and we might price another property at, at at 80 cent recovery, but blended together, you know, we're, we're getting like 55 cents on the dollar in our bid. Um, you know, before we weren't getting any traction on having banks transact at these levels, but now I think, you know, reality has sent, set in and you're, you're seeing those opportunities come forward because the banks fear that they're going to decline further and just want to kind of take the hit they've built up the reserves, they're not lending any more money, right? So any, any excess spread they're generating, they're, they're putting towards their balance sheet. Um, and, and once they hit that point, they're able to dispose of the assets. <clears throat> I think, as I mentioned before, I think that the, the interconnectivity between banks and the real estate market is, is going to continue continue for the next couple of years and you're going to see more of you know this 
consolidation and or liquidation of U.S. banks. Um, you know, in during the the uh, savings and loans crisis and the the RTC days, which which I came into at the very beginning of my career, you had almost 750 banks fail in the U.S. Um, during the global financial crisis, you had 400 banks fail in the U.S. We've had five so far with this one, and it was the the quickest and largest interest rate move that we've had in, in 45 years. Um, I just think a lot more eggs are going to get broken at the end of the day. And I think some of those situations are going to be resolved by the FDIC by um, doing these shotgun weddings where they're putting two institutions together and they're coming up with a, a loss sharing structure. Um, and others are going to be resolved um, by fully just liquidating the banks. And and you're starting to see that. I mean, there's, you know, the FDIC is holding auctions all the times of different loan pools that they've effectively kind of repossessed. And, and you know, if you were to bid on those assets without underlying support or some back-end loss sharing agreement from the FDIC, I think they would price much, much cheaper than, than they have been. The banks that are affected, though, Josh, when we talk to the optimists about this, they say it's just this very small community banks. It's nothing systemic. It's nothing that important. And, and these things will all this will all blow over without a, a widespread crisis. Do you think it's bigger than that? Uh, I mean, I don't think there's a systemic risk at the end of the day. But to say it's just going to be limited to small banks in today's world where you can have a run on a bank pop up and kind of manifest itself over, you know, over two or three days because people are, are taking money out with their with their cell phones. I mean, that's just a new dynamic. And, and the stress that's involved with that on these banks, I think, can can produce outcomes that people can't necessarily predict. Um, but I mean, look at the banks that, that have already gone down. I mean, they were big, you know, $250 billion institutions. These are not small banks. Now, they had other issues. You know, they, they, they went long, you know, on, on the wrong side of a rate trade. And, and they were exposed to, you know, huge amounts of uninsured deposits. But I think the, the underlying restructuring that's going to occur within the real estate market is going to continually drag on small and regional banks for many years. And it's gonna be a process, it's gonna be a churning process, and every now and then you're gonna have a you know, New York community bank pop up where, where people are like, gosh, you know, we, we took a, you know, a $50 million reserve one quarter and now we're increasing that by 10X the next quarter. Josh. Fortress is one of the few firms that have tried to buy a bank out of liquidation through in this new era, the last few years. And the FDIC and bank regulators don't seem too keen on private equity, hedge funds, bidding. How have you found that process? What is your thought on, on non-banks? Yeah, I mean, Lisa, I think, I think you're exactly right. I don't think... Um... The government regulators like the idea of private capital making profit off of, you know, kind of the woes of of these these banks, especially when they were supposed to be regulated um, very efficiently and closely by government entities. Um, so I would say that um, at least to date, there's been a lot of reticence to to deal with folks like us and and other private equity firms. Um, and I think the 
the processes that they've employed have been fairly schizophrenic um, as far as how they've approached these situations. You know, you, you've you you had them make announcements, you know, on a on a Friday that they were guaranteeing all the deposits, not just the minimums. And you had, you know, um, you know these 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 mergers between different institutions occurring over a weekend. Um, but I think that um, the underlying stress here is just so big, as as I said, you know, a, a multi-trillion-dollar problem that they'll eventually get to a point where where I think they're just going to have to utilize private capital to help clean up the mess and to help recapitalize the system. What are you doing to get ready for that? I mean, you know, we, we, we are, you know, like, like I said, we're kind of, we're, we're interacting with those banks that have built up enough capital reserves that they can start selling assets at distressed prices. So, you know, we're going to continue to engage on those kind of bilateral conversations and we'll continue to buy assets uh, directly from financial institutions before they get, you know, taken over by the FDIC. But, you know, the next, the next, um, bank blow up or the next liquidation you see out there will be one of the bidders again. And, you know, we might, we might take on a bank charter at some point and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, or team up with a bank, you know, that, that we could invest in on a minority basis to help accomplish that. Um, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see how the process works out. Given what you were saying about the risks in the banking sector and um, the chance that we will have many more uh, failures and so on, is there also then a risk that we may not have seen the bottom in terms of real estate prices or that um, the workouts that you talked about taking sort of three or four years might actually take much, much longer? And what would your appetite then be if those workouts were to be extended or if um, we haven't seen the bottom in terms of valuations? Well, that, that's that's how we're kind of approaching it. I mean, you know, going going back to the the FDI, uh, going back to the savings and loans crisis in the RTC days, you know, you had commercial real estate prices not increase for five or six years. You know, they they didn't go down. You know, they they crashed down and then they just stayed there and were stuck there um, for an extended period of time. So I think. You know, I think we're, we need to assume that you could have a very similar situation where, you, you know, when you do hit the bottom, and I'm not saying, you know, to your point that we are at the bottom today, that you could have, you know, this extended kind of stagnated period of time where you just don't see increases in values, which frankly people have enjoyed for the last 20 years because interest rates have been kept so low and, you know, been reduced from much more moderate levels. Um, so, you know, when we're buying an asset and we're pricing an asset, we're making those assumptions that there's not going to be an easy exit for us. You know, I'd, I'd say the last, you know, two distress cycles, you know, whether it's COVID or it's the global financial crisis for, you know, for operators like us, it's it was very unusual because we were underwriting and assessing assets, assuming you're going to have this long duration, you know, five-year recession and prices were going to crash. And then in both those cases, you know, they weren't true distress cycles because the central bank, you know, blew their horn and they came running to the rescue and flooded the world with liquidity and low interest rates. You know, they, they can't do that this time around. So I would argue that what you're going to see for the next couple of years is a traditional distress cycle. And, and those are, as we know, are multi-year cycles where it takes a long time to work through 
um, you know, you might not have crashes, but you're certainly going to have bumps along the way, and and it's going to take time and 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 a lot of capital and a lot of kind of losses to be realized. Yeah. There was one of the things that you you mentioned was you know, potentially being a minority investor in a bank of some sort at some point. But can I um, rather cheekily take the liberty to ask, um, could we see a fortress bank in 12 to 24 months? No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, we don't. Uh, we, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's. I think other ways that we can make great returns for our investors on a risk-adjusted basis by investing in the underlying assets than having to take on the burden of, you know, holding deposits in a true regulatory system that that surrounds that. Um, you know, we're, we're active lenders in the market through our private credit business and our direct lending business. And, you know, that business has, has grown tremendously, just like the overall market has. And, you know, it's, it's not because, you know, everybody's just pushing dollars out the door. It's because there's a need for it. There's a demand for it because traditional sources of lending have, have closed up shop. So when we look at uh, Fortress um, on the terminal, Josh, we see them everywhere, you know, from Legado Networks um, and distressed corporates to a $12 billion high-speed rail project connecting Las Vegas to Southern California. Um, you're also in a joint venture in Greece, um, buying um, debt managed by the country's credit servicing firms at a discount. Um, there are all sorts of things that are happening. What's the best relative value for you? Where, where's the big opportunity if you had to pick one thing? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I think what we what we think is one of our strengths at the end of the day is our ability to to listen to what the market's ultimately telling us. Um, you know, the the opportunity sets that exist out there move around over time. You know, if we ever get stuck in a lane and we're just investing in you know corporate distressed debt, and all of a sudden you know you know credit rallies and and we have nothing to buy, it, it, it's not a great business model for us. So we pay careful attention to kind of listening to what the market's telling us and trying to find those opportunities that do provide that best risk and reward. And sometimes those opportunities exist in the public markets. So for example, you know, the, the three months after the COVID lockdown, so like, you know, March, April, May, you know, June, I mean, we, we didn't do one private investment over that period of time. And we pushed billions of dollars out the door to buy lots of great, you know, correct, you know, cheaply priced um, uh, liquid assets. And as the markets recover, then we kind of get more of a balance between private investing and public investing. And then we move around between different asset classes. Some of those are, are generated by the market. For example, the, the real estate opportunity that exists out there or the lending opportunity through our private credit business or you know, certain maybe perhaps distressed PE opportunities. Um, and uh, at the same time, we have the ability to kind of generate um, non-market correlated returns through kind of businesses that we've that we've um, put together and, and grown up within Fortress, and those might be things like our legal assets business or our IP business, um, which you know 
for the most part, aren't affected by interest rates or the overall market. So you kind of take all that together and bundle it together and you can come up with, you know, pretty resilient funds at the end of the day that have terrific downside protection, but also, you know, can be very opportunistic when the market, you know, shows us that fat pitch. But at the beginning, you mentioned that um, you kind of got the rates call right when everyone else was wrong. Are there any other big contrarian calls you've got right now that you think everyone else is wrong on? Um, well, you know, making calls is always a bad idea. Uh, at least I, I found that to be my experience. But um, I, you know, I, I think um, I think the Fed has done a pretty good job of of managing. Um, managing this economy over the past 18 months. Um, I think if you listen to them and the words that were coming out of their mouths, you, you knew exactly what was going to happen and, and what was going on. Um, you know, there were a lot of naysayers a year ago about, you know, recession was coming and, you know, we're, we're going to fall off a cliff and we're going to have the greatest storm in, in the century of, of, of financial conditions. And, you know all these all these bad things, but when we when we turned inside and we looked at our portfolios and we looked at the companies that we were lending to and we looked at the the things that we owned, you know we we didn't see that. You know I mean we have thousands of borrowers that that exist at Fortress and even thousands more that we service through you know other servicing arrangements that we may have on a global basis, and we just weren't seeing that um, that potential. Um, so. You know, I, I've, I hear the calls again for another recession, um, you know, but again, we're not necessarily seeing it in our, our underlying loans and businesses. Um, I'm keeping a very close eye on the labor market. And I think as long as the labor market holds together, I think as long as you have unemployment at this level, I think inflation is going to be stubborn. And I think um, the, the chance of, you know, falling into a recession is 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 going to be lower um now that said you know we underwrite every loan we underwrite every asset we we buy on a pretty draconian set of assumptions like we, we we're, we're geared to only assume the worst uh, and if something good happens then that's gravy on top for us so um we uh you know we we, we have a view towards the downside but I don't think things are, you know, necessarily as, as dire as, as perhaps folks say it is. Great stuff. Josh Peck, co-CEO and managing partner at Fortress Investment Group. Many thanks for coming on the Credit Edge. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Also, big thanks to Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London. Brilliant to see you again. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So, Tolu Alamutu at Bloomberg Intelligence. There's a ton of worry right now about commercial real estate, as we just discussed with Josh. But where are the pain points? What are we most concerned? How, how can we see this crisis unfolding? I, I think that um, we have, in some ways, seen uh, the crisis unfolding in some parts of the um, real estate bond market and also the equity market. So, if you look at where some of the um, real estate uh, securities trade now they are the highest yielding um, in the investment grade universe and they have been that way um, for some time now which I guess tells you that people are um, not yet com as comfortable with real estate issuers as they are with uh, many of the others uh, within the investment grade universe so in general uh, real estate names trade quite wide so I think that there is pain to all around in terms of where uh, securities are trading uh, whether you're looking at debt or um, 
at equity. Um, in terms of the sectors, though, um, the the one that always comes up and obviously also came up in the conversation with uh, Fortress is the office sector, um, which is under p- particular pressure because of sustained um, work from home practices. So, you know, vacancies in some areas are still high, but there is definitely a difference between, um, you know, the, the so-called prime and sort of not prime um, sectors within office itself. But office is, I think, where um, off, the office sector is where people, I think, are most worried still. And that's obviously great for Fortress. I mean, uh, Josh Pack was just, you know, really very excited about the opportunity, but it's going to hurt somebody. Um, um, he mentions the banks as, as big losers potentially from this. Are there any other potential casualties? I mean, are there investors involved? Are there other areas that, you know, there might be some fallout in terms of losses? So I think we, we've we already seen some losses in terms of the holders of the um, office and um, other real estate securities like the the bond and so on. And yes, he is right that some banks will um, have to raise provisions, have to take losses against the exposures that they have. But you know, it, it's all across the financial se- services sector. So whether that's um, insurers, asset managers and so on, um, you might see... Um, pain there. But I think the focus right now is really on what is going on in the banking sector, primarily because um, the the regulators all around the world basically are um, taking a closer look or seem to have been taking a closer look at banks' uh, exposures to real estate. And in some cases, that's meaning that those uh, lenders have to increase provisions quite significantly against um, the exposures that they have. And that's leading to losses and to the headlines that we have been talking about. And the last time we spoke, Tolu, um, we talked a lot about Sweden and Germany as kind of hotspots. Are, are those still the places that, that in Europe, at least, things are kicking off? Um, most definitely. So we we um, have continued to, to monitor what's going on in, in both those countries. Um, but also Austria has come up because of a name called Signa. Um, but Signa is a very complex real estate group with multiple um, entities within it that have cross shareholdings. Um, in some cases, they act as landlords, some cases as a developer, some cases even as tenants. So that entity uh, or various parts of that entity um, are going through um, various types of restructuring uh, right now. So that's one that has received a lot of focus, but definitely um, Germany still um, a focus for people. We had one uh, issuer recently say that they believe that uh, residential real estate prices could fall as much as 30% or could be down as much as 30% from the peaks, which is clearly a lot. And there's still um, worries about the office sector there and definitely Sweden. But I'd say in Sweden, the focus is still on a few issuers, not necessarily the whole uh, sector. So SBB is one that always um, comes up and... uh, in in uh, some conversations um, on Sweden. Thank you. Tolo Alamutu at Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, James. And check out all of Tolo's research on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's great stuff. I'm just going to spell your name so people can, can absolutely find it. T-O-L-U-A-L-A-M-U-T-U. You must, must read it. It's really must-read stuff. And also check out her webinars. They're also great. Um, and thanks thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. And thanks again to Josh Peck at Fortress and Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. 
And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all good podcast providers. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrumbie8 at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crumbie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.